This is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Father, from the preaching of your word, may you do the miraculous today. God, may you draw us closer to yourself. Father, may you open eyes and give new hearts to those who have not heard the truth the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your grace, your continued grace on us. I pray that you will use this day to strengthen our faith, to strengthen us in this life, in our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you will help us to see this text, to see you in a new light. And may you be praised Father, help us now, we ask in your name. Amen. In every generation, there have been skeptics to the Christian faith. People all throughout history who have not believed the truth. There are those who don't believe the reality about God or about themselves or the need of salvation. It's meaningless to them. They don't see what the big deal is. Paul makes it clear, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skeptics laugh and they ridicule Christians for believing that we need Jesus as Savior, that He needed to die on our behalf. But there's a sin problem that we all have, and only Christ can remedy this problem. He alone is able to save and give us new life in Him. Isaiah has been laying this out for us in the first five chapters of his book. It's been sort of an introduction. He's been laying out the people's problem, their crime, it's been called, 
how they've offended God and what God plans to do about it. Today, Isaiah tells us what led him to share with these people. It is perhaps one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. What is it that sent him into ministry toward a people who needed to hear about their sin? It's what every skeptic needs to hear. It's what every Christian needs to be constantly reminded of. What is it that the Israelites forgot? What is it that skeptics don't see? Why can't people see sin for what it is? How evil it is? How destructive sin is? Simply, what makes sin sin? Every question ultimately has its answer in God. We cannot understand anything about our faith. We cannot understand anything about life. We cannot understand anything about the problem that we each of one of us have until we relate it to God. So what makes us sinful is relating us to God. He is a holy God. It is His holiness that makes our sin so incredibly awful. This is what skeptics don't see. They don't see their sin and God's holiness. Around 800 times in Scripture, God describes Himself as holy. That's more than any other attribute of God. God does tell us about His love, His mercy, and His goodness. But His holiness is mentioned the most. This means that the number one thing that God wants us to know about Him is His holiness. I want to give you eight truths about God and His holiness in today's text. If you're a skeptic, I challenge you to consider them and see if these eight truths change your outlook on the Christian faith. Then I want all of us to notice the effect of God's holiness on Isaiah and what effect it should have on us. But before we get into the text, we need to define what God's holiness is. Lots of men have defined it through the centuries. There are lots of good books written on God's holiness. There are two particularly today. One is by R.C. Sproul and his book, The Holiness of God. The other is by Jerry Bridges, his book, The Pursuit of God. Of holiness. At one point, this is what R.C. Sproul writes as he kept reading the Bible, and I'm quoting The one concept, the central idea I kept meeting in Scripture was the idea that God is holy. 
The Word was foreign to me. Like it is to to most of us. It was foreign to R.C. Sproul. I wasn't sure what it meant. I made the question a matter of diligent and persistent research. Today, I am still absorbed with the question of the holiness of God. I am convinced that it is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. Are you struggling to understand God? Are you wrestling with what makes the Christian faith such a big deal? Then commit to learning and studying and seeking the holiness of God. Jerry Bridges wrote this, and I'm quoting him. If holiness then is so basic to the Christian life, why do we not experience it more in daily living? Why do so many Christians feel constantly defeated in their struggle with sin? Why does the church of Jesus Christ so often seem to be more conformed to the world around it than to God? At risk of oversimplification, the answers to these questions can be grouped into three basic problems. And I'm still quoting Jerry Bridges. Our first problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. We cannot tolerate failure in our struggle with sin chiefly because we are success-oriented not because we know it is offensive to God. God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Our second problem, and I'm still quoting Jerry Bridges, our second problem is that we have misunderstood living by faith. We've misunderstood living by faith to mean that no effort at holiness is required on our part. Our third problem is that we do not take some sin seriously. We have mentally categorized sins into which is unacceptable and that which may be tolerated a little bit. God has called every Christian to a holy life. And it's based on the fact that God Himself is holy. End of quote. Now, neither of these authors have yet defined for us what holiness is. They attempt to do it based on Scripture later in their books. What they do show us is the importance of holiness. Is holiness important to you? Is holiness an important aspect or the important aspect in your life? Perhaps we can begin to define holiness by saying that it's something that we are not. Let's just begin right there. On the ground floor of what holiness is, holiness is something that you and I are not. 
you and I are not holy. That means on our best day, doing the greatest we could ever do, we would still be unholy. I do not sin and therefore become unholy. I am unholy, therefore I sin. Sin is a problem in our lives because we are unholy. Holy is what God is. God is holy, and that's where we begin. The biblical concept of holiness is that it means to be cut off or to be separate. God is separate. He's separate from from everything. He is the creator, and we are the creation. He is set apart. He's not like us. He's in a class all by himself. He is infinitely exalted above everything. He is without limitations. To call God God is to call him holy. There's none like him. Another way to look at this is to see what God's holiness is not. God is not holy because He's good. God determines what is good because He is holy. God is not holy because He's righteous. God is righteous and blameless and pure because He is holy. God is not holy because He loves us or cares for us. God is love. He is kind because He's holy. Herman Bavnik said that God is holy in a comprehensive sense in connection with every revelation that impresses humans with His deity. You can write this down then. The holiness of God is the splendor and the uniqueness of God. I'll say that again. The holiness of God is the splendor and the uniqueness of God. To consider the holiness of God is to consider all that God is. The purity of His nature, the infinite qualities of of his character, the combined splendor of his majesty and glory, his boundless power and sovereign rule, meaning he has absolute control over everything. A name for God that's regularly used in the Old Testament is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. The splendorous and unique one that formed and established Israel and everything else. This does not describe all that God is. What you and I know about God is not all there is to God. This is what God has revealed to us about Himself. Because He's infinite... That means forever. Because He's infinite, there is unlimited more to God. 
If you search the depths of God, you would never get to the bottom of who He is. You would always be exploring, always in amazement and wonder at God. And because God is holy, He's the one that makes other things holy. The ground, you'll remember this, the ground became holy when Moses went to the burning bush. It was because God was there. When he left, the ground was no longer holy. God's holiness radiates from him. It overflows from who he is. So much that it fills all that surrounds him. His holiness impacts everything. Our God is holy, and we are not. What I'd like to do is now show you eight aspects of God's holiness that Isaiah shares in the text. Isaiah tells us in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, that he was worshiping in the temple. You'll remember before that during the reign of Uzziah, Judah... The land of Judah, the people of Judah, enjoyed prosperity. God allowed them to thrive. But in 2 Chronicles 26, it tells us Uzziah became proud and all the people with him. So they needed Isaiah to share the previous chapters that we've been through with them. Now in the midst of all this, Isaiah was taken up in a vision to heaven and entered the throne room of God. Just on a side note, this was the year that King Uzziah died. A man died. His death is a contrast between the mortal, finite kings and the heavenly, everlasting king. While men become proud and are never consistent and they die... God remains steady and is always faithful. While men are appointed to die, God continues to reign. Just in that simple phrase, in the king, in the year King Uzziah died, we see God's holiness. God is separate. He's set apart. He's different. And there's more to see. First, the first aspect is God is knowable. In this vision, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Wouldn't you want to see God? What does God look like? Wouldn't you want to see God? In in one sense, I would say yes. Yes, I want to see God. I want to be in awe like what's described here. But in another Because of what Isaiah goes through, I would say no. But for the very same reason, I would then say yes to what Isaiah goes through. To see God. Isaiah is taken us and he's taken up and he recognizes the Lord. He knew who he was. He doesn't say he saw some being. He doesn't say he saw something. He says, I saw the Lord. He knew who He was. 
Romans 1.19 says, What can be known about God is plain to everyone, because God has shown it to them. God has revealed Himself to everyone. God has communicated to all of us that He is there. This does not mean we know all there is to God. He is unsearchable in many ways. We can never fully understand God. But He has made Himself known to us. We don't just know about Him. Like you turn on the news or you have on your phone or TV, you know facts and you know the reputation of maybe someone famous, but you don't know them. It is God Himself who we know. God Himself. Jeremiah in chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, reminds us, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, to see God face to face. Now, as we are, to see God face to face meant certain death. Because we are unholy. Now some question Isaiah's ability to actually see God. Since God is spirit. What should be recognized here is that God has revealed himself in such a way that Isaiah could understand who he is. He knew and he understood who he was looking at was the living God. We all have the ability not to see Him with our physical eyes, but to understand and to perceive, yes, there is a God. Because He has revealed Himself in His creation and through His Word. And we can come to know Him personally because He initiates relationship with us. Next, God is king. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne that is high and lifted up. He's not king among kings. He calls himself the king of all kings and creation. That is what high and lifted up means. There is no one else on the level that God is on. He is high and lifted up. The psalmist says, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. This king, the king, is not just a king to be obeyed, he's a king to be worshiped. Isaiah, remember where Isaiah was when he was given this vision of the throne. Isaiah was in the temple and was given the view of the throne. The palace of the king is the temple. This king has a robe and its train fill the temple. 
He is majestic, is what's being described here. God is majestic more than any other being. There is so much splendor of God that His presence just fills wherever He goes. Another way to say it is God is so great, we will spend eternity learning more and more and more about His greatness. We will be filled with it constantly, forever. God sits on a throne and He has ultimate authority and power. God is not someone who's frantically running around trying to hold things together and repair the cracks like He's so often depicted. God is not trying to fix anything. He is exalted. He is sovereign. He's in complete control of everything. He's not running around. He's not panicking. Nothing rattles God. What's He doing? He's sitting on His throne. He's in perfect peace as His plan is fulfilled. He has no obligations to anyone or anything other than Himself and His own Word. And He has both the authority and the means to make it happen, whatever He wills. In verse 2, the seraphim are above Him, we're told. Not in authority, but as servants standing over Him and waiting on the Lord. These are heavenly beings whose name means the fiery ones, the burning ones. They are literally like living flames. They have six wings, we're told, two covering their face, two covering their feet, and two for flying. They are serving the Lord in humility. That's what the covering of their face and their feet is signifying for us. They are serving the Lord in humility. While they serve Him, what are they doing? They are praising Him. They are serving and praising God. They are filled with praise for God, and that tells us God is thus superior. That's the second. Rather, the third. That's the third aspect. God is superior. Now, this is not the same as high and lifted up. God is not just higher than us or higher than the angels as if Picture like a set of stairs, like it goes one, then the other, and then the next, and God is at the top of the chain. That's not what it means when I say God is superior. He is completely superior to everything else. Him being served does not mean that there's a need that He needs fulfilled. The seraphim, what they're doing as they're serving, they're waiting to do His will. That's what they're doing. God is independent and more excellent than everything. God did not need help putting the stars in place. He does not need help to sustain life. He does not need you or me to tell Him how things should be. He determines it all. All things are in submission to God. Fourthly, What Isaiah sees is not just a few angels attending the Lord. 
Don't picture ones and twos or even a dozen around the Lord. That's not it here. John tells us in Revelation 5, it is myriad, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Literally, millions serving the Lord and praising Him. And what are they saying? What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The triple repetition means God is perfectly holy. God is set apart even from sinless angels. He is perfect in all that He does. He's perfect in all who He is. There's no half-heartedness to God. There's only the full extent of His perfections. This is the Godness of God. R.C. Sproul points out in another part of his book, no other attribute is described this way in the Scriptures. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. The Bible never says God is good, good, good. It says God is holy, holy, holy. He alone is who He is. He is nothing like us. Man always tries to picture God as a greater example to himself. That's not so. God is not just a greater being than us that we can somehow aspire to. God is pure and upright. God never misses the mark. He is righteous and good. This is why God can vindicate Himself. He doesn't look to anything to set the moral standard. He is the standard. And when it looks like He's being unfair or He's being unjust, you and I just need to wait. You and I just need to wait and His justice is displayed. He shows Himself true. The fifth aspect of God's holiness Given in our text is the second part of what the angels are singing. The whole earth is full of God's glory. God is glorious. Now the way John Piper describes this is helpful here. John Piper describes God's glory and says, The glory of God is the manifest beauty of His holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. To say God is glorious is to say God has shown you, he has shown me and everyone around me that he is holy, holy, holy. God is not just awesome in heaven where he served, he is known here. He is glorious here. Every part of the earth has God's thumbprint on it. Every piece of vegetation, every culture, every person has an imprint of God. The dignity that you hold as a person is not in who you are. 
Your dignity as a person is because you have been created in God's image. And that image is beautiful. It's more beautiful than the most rarest jewel. It's more beautiful than the most precious diamond. More than the rarest metal. That's why God's presence is described sometimes as a blinding light. Have you ever seen light hit a diamond and it, it just it kind of blinds you? Imagine that to infinity and we just get a little glimpse of the glory of God. God is more beautiful than our eyes can take in. Like the sun. If you look at the sun, it blinds our eyes when we look at it. We need to remember who's the one that set the sun in its place. Who created the sun? He has to be brighter than the sun for the sun to shine so bright. And when God speaks, we see the sixth aspect. He is all-powerful. God's holiness is not just awesome in a great sense in His authority and in His splendor. He's awesome in a lasting sense. He's almighty and unraveled. The foundations of the thresholds shook at His voice. God doesn't have to do anything. He speaks and there's a response. He's so powerful, the foundations of the world shake when His voice is heard. Isaiah will later say in chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. When God speaks, it comes to pass. It happens just as He wants it to. God tells us, He will accomplish all that He purposes to. Nothing gets in His way. Nothing stops God. He overcomes it all and makes His will the reality simply by speaking it. Encountering the known, kingly, superior, perfectly holy, glorious, all-powerful God. Look at what this experience does to Isaiah. What does he say in verse 5? Woe is me. I don't think he said it like that. There's an exclamation there because he said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This was not a whisper. This was a cry of desperation. Woe is me. What's going to happen to me? Isaiah is undone. He's undone. In the presence of the holy God, we are exposed for who we are. His holiness reveals our sinfulness. Regardless of what Isaiah has done. Remember, this is the sixth chapter Regardless of what Isaiah has done for God, 
his heart has not been captivated by God. Where's your heart this morning? Has it been captivated by God? Isaiah's heart did not match what he said, and that made him unclean. Isaiah is left terrified in the holy presence of God. He is shaking in fear of what may happen to him. If God sees him for who he is, he's done. He's just simply done. There'll be no more Isaiah. And he's not any better off than anyone else. Isaiah has said all the right things, yet he and everyone else is unclean in God's presence. It's not in what we say, it's not in what we do for God that makes us right with him. God is looking inward. He's looking inside, deep down into the very essence of who you are. And as he does that, you and I are undone. We say, woe is me. But look at what God does. He doesn't leave Isaiah there trembling. He commands the seraphim to go to Isaiah. He initiates the way out from this terrible position. And they touched Isaiah from the altar. They took away his guilt. It atoned for his sin. And this shows us that our God is full of grace. God is full of grace. Remember, God didn't have to do anything for Isaiah. God doesn't have to do anything for us. God is free to do anything, whatever he chooses. God chose to clean Isaiah. In his grace, he did not force Isaiah to make amends. He did not have him do anything or accomplish anything. Isaiah was hopeless. He knows what's going to happen. And God touched him and he gave him hope. Instead of destroying Isaiah, he gave him his grace and Isaiah was renewed. So far, we've seen seven aspects of God in his holiness. Seven wonderful aspects of the holy God. Now, the eighth one is something that's not directly in this text, but it's really important for you and I to know. It's tied directly to the text. Those who came before us, they had to wait 750 years from Isaiah to John's Gospel. All you and I need to do is turn to John chapter 12, and if you'll do that with me. All you and I have to do, there is no more waiting. All we have to do Turn to John chapter 12, and here we will see that God is salvation. That's the eighth aspect of the holiness of God. John tells us that Isaiah didn't just see God in some generic sense. Isaiah is not some deist, right? He, he doesn't see just some generic general form 
and says, oh, that, that must be the Lord. In his vision, he specifically saw who it is sitting on the throne of glory in his holiness. In his vision, Isaiah saw Jesus sitting on his throne. I'm going to begin at the end of verse 36. Jesus has just finished talking about being lifted up on the cross and drawing people to himself. And at the end of verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory? The one speaking, Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw Christ on the throne. God does not just provide salvation as if it's something separate from him. Jesus is not just the means. He is salvation. He is what saves us. He had just finished talking about being lifted up. The world sees it as being lifted up in shame. And God says, no, this is my glory on display. And I'm drawing people to myself. God doesn't provide salvation like it's separate. Christ is what saves us. In the Son of God is redemption. In Christ is the holiness and the grace that you and I need. A few verses later, you look down at verse 46. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In the cross of Christ, the glory of God is revealed. His holiness is upheld and salvation is found. Jesus is holy because he is God sitting on the throne in Isaiah's vision. Jesus is Savior because he's all-powerful. Jesus is head of the church because all authority is his. Jesus speaks, and His people hear His voice, and they respond, and they come to Him. Jesus atones for sin because He's full of grace. Have you encountered the living God? Have you experienced the cleansing that God does for His people? Like Isaiah, you and I are cleaned by His grace, made to live for him, The one on the throne is the one who shed his blood so that you would be atoned for. That you will repent and believe and walk in his way and do his will. In his salvation, Christ does not leave us. He is not separate from it. He gives us new purpose. Like Isaiah, the voice of the Lord says, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? May you and I, with all humility 
and love and determination say, here I am. Here I am. Send me. The holiness of God will then be made known among the nations. Let's pray.